I'm so excited, and I just can't hide it. I think somebody sang it like that one time, and I just popped the back off of this, so pause a moment while I modify, adapt, and adjust. Are you blessed to be here today? I'm so glad to see you with us. If you're a first-time guest, my name is Michael. I'm the lead pastor here at Victory. We're thrilled to have you. Um, we, we say this all the time, and we do it because we mean this. There truly are a lot of great churches in this area, and we are privileged to have you join us this morning uh, and honor us with your presence in worship and to worship the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Somebody say amen. So we welcome you today. Hope you'll just make yourself at home. We're starting a new series today called David Poet Warrior King. So as we jump into this today, um, I just want to uh, tell you how excited I am to, to get into this series. This is one of my very favorite parts of Scripture if I were preaching the New Testament, it would be the book of Ephesians. If I'm preaching the Old Testament, it would be the life of David. Um, I've only done this kind of a thing one time before, and this is a whole totally different rewrite in terms of things that I'm doing this time, because David literally could be 105 lessons. That's, uh, it could be more than that. It's all substantial, all Sunday by Sunday. But we have chose to put this in really kind of Eight, sort of going to fly down and look at eight pillar points in David's life from the time God chooses him from the sheep shed, so to speak, as we're going to call it this morning, all the way through the conclusion of his reign and the anointing of his son Solomon and the building of the temple. So we're going to look at eight occurrences, eight big events in his life and fill in some gaps in between. So I'd like if you would to stand with me please this morning. The title of this message today to start this off is the phrase that has made David become famous. This is God's description of David. How many of you would like to have this description by God over your life? Say it out loud with me, please. Here we go. David, a man after God's own heart. Like you mean it. One more time. David, a man after God's own heart. Let's look at this morning at Psalm 78. We're going to grab three verses of Scripture only, 70 through 72. And I'd like you to read this out loud with me. Here we go. He chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds. Click. From following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. Two things I want you to see. Everybody see upright heart, skillful hand. Get it again. Upright heart, skillful hand. With an upright heart, he shepherded them. And then with a skillful hand, he guided them. So things that he does in his government as a king, he learned from leading dirty, nasty, smelly sheep. Isn't that amazing how God uses these sort of backwater lessons to bring us to the front and help us to do great things for the advancement of His kingdom. I've got a couple more verses I want you to grab. Just, just listen. I'm going to read these. Acts 13, 22. This is where we find the New Testament description of David. It says, And when he had removed him, we're talking about Saul now. Paul gives a great historical summary of all the way from Abraham all the way up through this point, through Saul and David. When he removed him, everybody say Saul. Okay, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, read with me aloud, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. Now we're going to grab one more. We're going to go back to 1 Samuel 13. We were in Acts 13. Now we're going to go back to 1 Samuel 13. And I'll read this one. Here we go. But now your kingdom shall not continue. Samuel is speaking to Saul 
who is the first king of Israel. He says, now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man, read it from here, after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Bow your hearts with me. God, we ask you today as we stand in this place that you open our hearts and our ears and our eyes to hear and to see and to receive. Uh, the proverb says, the seeing eye and the hearing ear, the Lord hath made them both. We just acknowledge that we desperately need you. Uh, give us the ability to perceive and understand today what is the purpose of your kingdom. Help us to understand the lordship of Jesus Christ, not only to see the life of a young man named David, but Lord, to see the one he points to, the sign, he, just to see our heavenly David, the Lord Jesus, revealed to us in a greater degree of glory. God, we ask you today as we submit this time to you that you just lead us and guide us, transform our hearts by the power of the gospel. That's our only hope. It is in Jesus. It's in that name and the power that's in that name. And everybody said, amen. You may be seated this morning in the presence of the Lord. One thing, one thing. I always try to put one thing, one idea, if you don't get anything else, because I realize that my messages many times are dense. They're packed. There's a lot of sometimes Hebrew and Greek words, and there's some biblical history and kingdom principles, or commandments and examples, commandments to be obeyed, examples to be followed, promises to be believed, all these kinds of things that we open the Bible and we see every time we open the Word, we ask these questions. And so with all of that, I try my best to really boil down um, because I love the Word. I love, I love Jesus. I love Jesus with all of my heart. I just, just worshiping God and just sitting at the, the keyboard this morning and being able to, to play behind Scott and Bernie and Aaron and just hearing the worship go up in this house. It is such a, such a dream come true for me. I knew from a young age that the hand of the Lord was on my life and there are things that I can relate to in, with David that I don't want to get ahead of myself in my message, but I can so relate to the aloneness and the obscurity that he felt and yet what God was able to produce in that time. And so today as we, we jump into this and as we see, I want you to grab this one thing. Say this with me, please. A heart for God prepares us to be used by God. Say it again. A heart for God prepares us to be used by God. So that is our prayer today, Holy Spirit, to transform us, to change our hearts and make us new. Give us true hearts according to the word of the Lord. So this morning as we jump into this, I want to give you very first of all some backstory, the backstory of Samuel and Saul. And this is found in the Old Testament book of Samuel chapters 8 through 15. And I'm just going to tell you a quick story to sort of get us uh, uh, jumped into the proper place in the stream of biblical history. Because uh, as you know, um, what happened yesterday affects my today. And, and what I do today, the choices I make, are going to affect the choices that I even have potentially to be able to make tomorrow. It's going to affect the day that I have. And, and, and history is all connected and our lives are all woven together and linked together. And what one generation does is going to affect the opportunities that another generation If you don't believe that, then remember Numbers 13 when... Twelve spies went into the land and ten came back with an evil report. God had delivered the children of Israel by the mediatorial leadership of Moses out of Egypt from the blood, the water, and the spirit 
Uh, Abraham's sons, the 12 tribes of, of Jacob, the 12 sons became the 12 tribes of Israel and they became an innumerable company that had served as slaves to Pharaoh for some 430 years. And in a moment, God heard the cry of his sons and daughters and he raised up a proper child, uh, literally delivered out of the water. His name was Moses, who, who means coming up out of the water. God raised him up, who's a picture of Jesus, and he delivered them by the blood, the water, and the spirit. Same way who Jesus comes along as the mediator of the new covenant and he delivers us with those same elements. The blood he sheds, the water who washes us in baptism and the infilling of the Holy Spirit. How many are thankful that, that God does what he does and he does a good job of it? It is a finished work and so Moses brings them to the brink of the Jordan. He doesn't go into the promised land. Joshua takes over when Moses dies and I'm sort of fast forwarding through a lot of history to bring you to this point. Joshua leads them in to take the promised land. They disperse the land according to their inheritances among the various 12 tribes. And um, uh, the period of the judges comes along and we've got people by the name of Gideon and Samson and Othniel, and Ehud, and Shamgar, and uh, Deborah, one of the judges of Israel, did a great thing in destroying Sisera. And so all of these judges are being raised up a lot of times in 40-year patterns, and the people of God would cry out to the Lord, and they would be in a place of tribulation and oppression by an enemy, and God would raise up a judge in Israel who would be their deliverer and who would bring them to a place of freedom, and they would enjoy great liberty and abundance in the blessing of God, and they would get settled down in that place of abundance, and they would just go back to their old sin patterns. And then God would say, okay, you didn't learn at that time. I'm going to let you have another taste of it. We're going to go around the mountain again. I'm going to give you another oppressor to come in and put a chain around your neck and around your leg. And you're going to cry out and God will raise up another judge, another deliverer in Israel. And to get you in history where we are, Samuel has just come on the scene. He is the last of the judges. He's a transitional man. He's the last of the judges of Israel. But he's the first of a whole new line of leader called the prophet. So Samuel ends the period of the judges and like a parenthesis that overlaps, he starts the period of the prophets and God is ruling in Israel as a theocracy. He's declaring the word of the Lord and the Bible says everyone from Dan to Beersheba knew that God was God in Israel and Samuel was his prophet. The testimony of the Lord about Samuel is that never his whole life did one of his words fall to the ground. Man, what a testimony to be able to say that you are a man of your word and you say what you mean and you mean what you say and you follow through and you keep your word and when you speak, God backs it up. Not just you keeping your word, but God gets behind that word and he, he, he fortifies it with the assurance of the bank of heaven, so to speak, and he brings the words that Samuel speaks to pass. And The fear of the Lord was on the people of Israel as long as Samuel led and when he would come into the town, the elders would go, are you coming peaceably? How I many of you know, they would pour out, they'd, they'd roll out the red carpet, they would bring out the best wine, they would kill the best fatted calf, they would put on the dog, as we say here in the south. They would put on the dog for the prophet. And basically they get to a place where they can't trust uh, the change of leadership because Samuel has been an amazing prophet. He has had a reputation that is impeccable. But he's a man. And the place where he's failed is that he's not done a good job training his sons to walk in the way of the Lord the way he himself did. He was raised in the temple of the Lord from a young boy. His mom herself, Hannah, who was unable to bear children, cried out to God in a 
in a time where the, where the priest of the Lord named Eli literally thought she was in a drunken stupor, but she was just pouring out her soul, and her grief, her mourning, and she cried out to God and promised, Lord, if you will give me a child, if you will open my womb and let my barrenness begin to bear seed, let me begin to bear fruit in my womb, I will give this firstborn son to you. And Samuel was the product of that promise, and he grew up in the temple of the Lord his whole life, knowing the heart of God, understanding the presence of God, knowing the word of the Lord on a daily, day-to-day kind of basis. And so this is Samuel's life, and he does an amazing job leading, literally ruling theocratically by the word of the Lord as he travels around uh, all of Israel, proclaiming the word of the Lord, but yet he's gone so much he doesn't do a good job training Joel and Abijah, his two sons. They're all about fame and gain and glory, and they're, they're tied up in all of the, the, the notoriety and the power that they have because they are sons of Samuel. They, they do despicable, perverted things. They lie with prostitutes right in the gate or in the opening of the temple of the Lord's presence. And basically God says, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold off for a little while, but the judgment of the Lord is coming on this mess. And the elders of Israel saw this. And they said, you've been an amazing leader, you're a great man of God, but your sons are not walking in the way of the Lord that you've taught us to walk in. And we need a leader. We want a king. We want to be like the other nations. And God had said from the beginning that Israel was not to be like all of the other nations. There would be a difference. They would be a leader among the leaders of the nations. They would be a priestly nation to all the rest of the nations of the earth. And to some degree, Israel has forgotten the promise of God. They've lost sight of the destiny that the Lord had on them. And they got a little bit of peer pressure. Come on, peer pressure is not just for junior high kids. Sometimes it's on your street and your block and what the next door neighbor just got in his garage and what he's driving and what he just married. And, and you got all this stuff that you're just wrestling with and how you got to keep up with the Joneses. And maybe you are the Joneses and you're trying to stay above everybody else. And Israel is trapped in this kind of peer pressure pursuit of wanting the notoriety, wanting the, the fame, wanting the respect of all the other nations because all the nations around them had a king. And Samuel grieves before God and the Lord speaks to Samuel and he says, don't you take this personally because they haven't rejected you, they've rejected me as their king. He said, go ahead and give them what they want. How many of you know most of the time a nation has the government that it deserves? I'll leave that alone. We're all called to pray no matter who is in the White House, no matter who is in the Supreme Court, no matter who is in the Congressional House. Some of them in the outhouse. They need to be. How many of you know God's still on the throne? He is still Lord. Come on, somebody, help me. You just need to pray. Pray for, pray, pray the wisdom, the blessing of God. Pray that we make it till the next election and pray that we don't end up worse off than we are right now. Come on, somebody, say amen. And in case you're thinking, I'm not talking Democrat or Republican. You just pray in whatever God leads you to do. I don't do that stuff. I don't do that. Church for too long got trapped in that kind of nonsense and we're supposed to be a voice outside of so that we can speak prophetically to everyone and speak the word of the Lord. Come on, somebody, help me a little bit. So Samuel basically says, okay, guys, I'm going to give you what you've asked for, but this is not going to be good, I promise you. You just hear, heed my words. And sure enough, God points out to Samuel a young man by the name of Saul. Everybody say Saul. Saul is of the tribe of Benjamin. He's the son of Kish. His father is a wealthy man. He is uh, probably would have been on the cover of People magazine in Israel had it been around back then. 
He's young. He's good-looking. He is. The Bible describes him as from the shoulders up, head and shoulders taller than all the men of Israel. He is everything that humans look to for leadership. He's tall. He's dark. He's amazingly good-looking. The Bible says he's a very handsome man. And so all of this comes together for this the muscles and the height and the, the look, the stare, the, all the, 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 the intensity, the passion, the jawline. He's got everything all on the outside. But we're going to see that when he's brought to the place of leadership, that he's very empty and void on the inside where the leadership really comes from a man. It's not from the externals, but it's from the inside. Somebody say amen. So he's going to come to the throne, and he's really enjoying a great deal of victory. He is taking, he is kicking Philistine butt and taking names. And he is whipping them up everywhere, and the people are rallying, and they're excited, and they're celebrating. we got pep rallies going on, and Saul is out there, and he's killing the Philistines, and everybody's celebrating and excited. We roll into 1 Samuel 13. And the whole thing that happens is, is that Samuel is an old guy and he shows up a little bit late. He probably woke up late that day and it took him a little longer to get there. He probably lived over in Marion and got caught by a train. He couldn't make it over in time. And so he finally makes it out there. But Saul didn't wait. Saul is very impetuous and he's impatient and he's, he's a people pleaser. He's all about making sure that his constituency is happy and keep everybody happy. And the Philistines had gathered at Mishmash. And the people of Israel were starting to scatter. And Saul was smart enough. He was perceptive. He could see the people. He could smell it, that there was a disunity in the camp. And he got tired of waiting on Samuel instead of waiting for the prophet of God to show up because the people of Israel knew that even with this handsome, young, tall, leading young champion of a king by the name of Saul, that we still had to have God on our side if we were going to win the battle against this, this nemesis, this constant enemy of the Philistines. And he's, he's moved because he sees that the people are starting to scatter. And the latest polls are indicating that he's slipping. And so he doesn't wait for Samuel to get there. And he goes out and unauthorized, he does what only the prophet should do. And it's not for the king. It's outside the lane of what the king is authorized according to the word of the Lord to do. And he offers the sacrifice. And the people rally. And about the time the big war cry is going up, Samuel shows up and says, What have you done? You didn't wait on me. I told you to wait. Saul disobeyed the word of the Lord. And it was at that moment where Saul looked at David and said, Your kingdom will not continue. The Lord has already sought out a man after his own heart. Now, get this if you don't get anything else. How many of you know if you don't do what God calls you to do, God always has somebody waiting in the wings that he's ready to promote? Come on, don't, don't anybody ever. I, I, first of all, I am so thankful and grateful for the privilege and the honor to lead this church for these plus 25 years, but I can never get it in my, in my mind or the idea that without me this thing can't go on because God always has somebody waiting in the wings that He is ready to promote and bring them with a willing heart up into a new place of leadership. Saul was cocky. Saul was arrogant. Saul was overconfident. There's nothing wrong with confidence if it's in the Lord and not in yourself. Saul's confidence was not in God, but in his ability to move people, his ability to lead people, his ability to garrison the support of all of the people of Israel. And he didn't wait. First Samuel 14, he makes a crazy vow about his son. 
Men of Israel have to rise up and say, no, we're not going to have it. I don't have time to tell you the story. 15, he doesn't obey the word of the Lord. He does three major acts of disobedience. One in 1 Samuel 13, one in 14, one in 15. He doesn't obey the prophet of God that says, I want you to completely annihilate the Amalekites and kill Agag and don't spare anything. Sheep, oxen, everything, get rid of them. And Saul is all about sort of bringing in the money and the treasury and making everybody pleased and everybody happy. And he shows mercy to Agag. Let me tell you what kind of character Agag was. Agag, when he killed the people of Israel, he would literally gut pregnant women and kill them with the baby in them and just stab them with a sword right in, right in the, the baby and carrying the, the, the child. And so Agag needed to die. How many of you know there's some folk in the Bible that need killing? Agag needed killing, and the word of the prophet said, Do not spare him, cut his head off. And Saul let Agag live, and he kept all the sheep and the oxen. Samuel shows up at the court of Saul, and Saul says, Hey, I've obeyed everything you said, and he's just smearing it on. He is just, just trying his best to sort of shine old Samuel. And Samuel says, Really? You've obeyed me? Then what is this bleeding of sheep that I hear in my ear? And he looks at Saul, and he says, Obedience is better than sacrifice, and hearkening to the voice of the Lord is better than the fat of rams. Samuel turns away to walk away, and he says, you're done. Saul grabs his robe to stop Samuel and tears his robe. And Samuel the prophet looked at Saul, and he said, This day has the kingdom been torn from you, and God will give it to another man that he's raised up who is after his own heart. Saul gets at his feet and begs and grovels before Samuel. And he says, oh, please, please, please. I know I've done wrong. I know I've disobeyed. But don't leave me here because if you leave me here, then the people will know that God has rejected me. He's always worried about what the people think. He's never worried about what God thinks. Samuel, being the good man that he is, he says, okay, I'll stay and offer the sacrifice. But I'm telling you, you're done. And the Bible says the Spirit of the Lord left Saul that day. And an evil spirit from the Lord came and troubled him. I'm getting into next week's message, so I'll stop at that right there. And from that moment on, can you imagine what it felt like to Saul to, to look around every time he entered a village to wonder if one of the young men that he was seeing might possibly be his successor? And he didn't even know who he was. So that catches us up to where we are and where God is about to anoint this young man by the name of David. Saul has been rejected by God I'm at point number two here where it says, fill your horn with oil and go. Samuel is grieving over Saul. And the Bible says in 1 Samuel 16, 1, the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel says, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. So Samuel was worried about Saul too. Basically saying, hey, if I go out there and I pour oil on some kid's head and Saul hears about it and my head's coming off, there's a target on my back. And God says, hang on, I got this. Just let me tell you what to do. And so he gives Samuel some instructions. He says, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Verse 4, Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? There it is. And he said, Peaceably, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Here we go at verse 6. 
1 Samuel 16. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before me. Because Eliab, I mean, he looks like Saul. He's tall, he's dark, he's handsome, he's chiseled, he's muscular, he's articulate, he can speak, he can move and motivate people. And Samuel is impressed with him. The Bible, listen to this. Here it is right here, verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. Now realize, guys, we're not talking salvation here. We're talking destiny, leadership. Are you, are you following me? When it says the Lord rejected Eliab, doesn't mean Eliab wasn't a son of the covenant because he was marked with the covenant. This is not what that's about. This is about God promoting someone for the purpose of leading all of the rest of the covenant nation of Israel. We're not talking salvation. We're talking destiny. We're talking the purpose in your life, influence, leadership. Somebody say amen. You got it, okay. He says, because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but what? But the Lord looks at the what? The heart. Say it with me. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Now remember, what's our one thing? A heart for God prepares us to be used by God. So God's looking inside. He's not interested in the greatest photo shoot, the most recent you know, depiction of how great and awesome and wonderful you are, you think you are, but He's looking to see what are the intentions and the motives on the inside of you. Areas where no one else can look at. Somebody say amen. Now, I just want to tell you, I'm going to skip some, because they go through this cycle six more times. So Jesse's seven sons are brought out. Okay, And so finally... Uh, the Bible says, uh, the Lord's not chosen these. Verse 11, Samuel said to Jesse, are, are all your sons here? And Jesse, Samuel's starting to say, well, I'm, I know God told me to come to the house of Jesse. You already picked out somebody to anoint as the king. He says, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. Everybody say, the sheep. Now you just smell it almost in the word sheep. There it is. He's at the sheep shed. It says, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. Now, I don't think it just was a 10-minute little jaint out there to go get David. I believe he was probably out there on the back 40 somewhere, down in a hill or a little valley, laying down those sheep, riding. He's got the little lyre beside him, and he's singing, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Where he leads me, I will follow. What he feeds me, I will swallow. He's writing the 23rd Psalm. He's writing all the Psalms of Israel. He's writing that worship manual, 150 chapters in the very middle of your Bible. If you put it up on the spine, let it fall open. More than likely, it will fall open to Psalms. The very center, the very heart of your Bible is worship. Most of them written by David, crying out to God in times of darkness. And he was saying, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear and of whom shall I be afraid? When my enemies turn and assail against me, the Lord is the glory and the lifter up of my head. And he's writing psalm after psalm, chapter after chapter, and he's taking down lions and bears and he's rescuing sheep from the mouths of those predators. And God is showing him what it's going to be like to lead his people in a little obscure, dark, lonely, nothing of a place. He shows up. He sent and brought him in, and he was ruddy and beautiful, beautiful eyes, and was handsome. Now, ruddy doesn't mean he was red-headed. He, was a, he looked like another, any other young Jewish young man. He 
dark hair, dark eyes, dark skin. Ruddy means he's red from the sun. He's been out there with those sheep hour after hour, day after day, week after week. Has beautiful eyes, the scripture says, and he's handsome. And so literally when he comes in, the Bible says, the Lord says, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And I love this. Listen. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now, I, I, I just want to take the last few minutes of this message because this is the, I'm bringing it down to culminate in this very moment right here. Everything I've said has to, is to bring us to this moment right here in this message. What is it about David that got God's attention? Because he's not really that different from any other young Jewish man. His age, 15 years old, probably at this point in his life, 15, 16, 17 at the very most. Young man, youngest of his family. It is believed among a number of Bible scholars that all of his seven brothers shared the same mother. They all share along with David the same dad. But it's believed that David was actually the product of an improper relationship. And because of that, he was the one always relegated to the back 40. And all the other brothers, the oldest ones and the most accomplished ones, those were the ones who seemed to be dad's favorites. And as a matter of fact, dad brought from his favorite on all the way down to the point that it's literally seen here that, that David's dad, Jesse, didn't really think a whole lot about David, but God thought a whole lot about him. How many of you know that's the important part right there? Come on, somebody. What others don't see, God is able to see. What others are looking at and might overlook you because maybe you don't have some of those kinds of characteristics, God says, no, but I see something way deeper on the inside of that heart. I see a willingness. I see a, a, a sensitivity to the voice of the Lord, a willingness to do all according to my will, a man after my own heart. That's what God said when he described David. Three things real quickly I want you to see. What, God got, what got God's attention? Number one, spirituality. Now, this doesn't mean that you... Listen to strange music and have crystals and incense and sit in a squatting position and go, um, none of those kinds of spirituality things. Spirituality, very simply, is you're sensitive to the things of the Spirit. You're sensitive to the voice of the Lord. You're willing to be flexible and do what you thought you might not necessarily do because it's something that you are convicted that God would have you to do. How many of you heard what I just said? Some of us end up doing things that we thought we would have never done. And many times when we can get past the fact that we thought we were too good to do that, we're able to glean a lesson from that that we couldn't have learned from a textbook in a classroom. And so spirituality is the ability to be flexible and be sensitive to the things of the Lord. 2 Chronicles 16.9 says it this way, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is holy toward Him, who is blameless toward Him. With everything, I just want to say, God, I give you my heart. Take my heart. Saul was all about, hey, look at these great sacrifices. God says, I'm not interested in all your stuff. I want your heart. And if I've got your heart, I have everything you have. The Word of the Lord, He seeks with His eyes. He runs to and fro. Second thing this morning beyond spirituality is humility. This is such a misunderstood word in American Christianity because we almost think that humility is kind of a sanctified inferiority complex. Oh, I'm just not any good. and just you know, you know, the whole point is if when you do that and you're consumed with letting everybody know how no good you are, you're still self-consumed. 
The humble person is not wasting time talking about himself. He's concerned with how great God is and how much greater he is than all of his shortcomings or even his greatest strengths. C.S. Lewis, the great Roman Catholic philosopher, theologian, said it this way and gave us what I believe is one of the very best definitions for humility. He said, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but it's thinking of yourself less. Did you hear that? Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but it's thinking of yourself less. Real humility means what's on the tip of my tongue isn't how I can't do this. It isn't how I'm not able to. It's not even focused on me. It's how great the God I serve is. It's, it's not how big my problem is. It's how awesome the God who loved me and gave himself for me is. Come on, somebody. That's the focus of my heart. Spirituality, humility. Finally, number three, integrity, wholeness, an undivided heart, living out of moral purpose, uprightness. Look back to two other translations we read in this text as we began the, the ESV said, with upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. The New Living Translation says, he cared for them with a true heart and led them with skillful hands. The NIV, New International Version says, and David shepherded them with integrity of heart and with skillful hands he led them. Notice that all of those translators that truly have a desire to bring the word into the current language into the current culture to help us really get clearly what God is saying. They never struggle with describing David's giftings. Every one of them said he had skilled hands. But they all struggle with how to define this meaning of this word. The ESV said an upright heart. The NLT said a true heart. The NIV said an integrity heart, a heart of integrity. Heart that is blameless, a heart that is whole before the Lord, a heart that basically says, God, this thing isn't even about me, but it's all about you, Jesus, and I give you myself. I surrender all. That was the heart of David. That's what made him different from all the other brothers who were more handsome, who were smarter, who were more prolific possibly in battle. Shielding the, holding the shield and wielding the sword and doing all of those things. But we'll see in the days ahead as we look to David that God's not even going to use the means that all of the men of Israel have been trained to defeat a giant. He's going to use a whole new kind of way. An almost just folksy kind of backwoods, just backwater redneck kind of David's redneck grab the slingshot, take down the giant. I can't wait to preach that. That's just good old stuff. Just come on. That's just the little guy whoops the big guy. It's the underdog. It's this, the, this, this, this whole thing that we all love to see what God does in the lives of His people. Come on, somebody say amen. All right, I've got to move. Are you getting anything out of this this morning? All right, almost finished. I, I believe there are four places that I want you to see that God will take you in the sheep shed school of leadership. Before you walk in your anointing and in your destiny, before you walk out the dream. Pastor Ray did an amazing job last weekend talking about the power of God-given imagination and seeing the future that God wants for you because He has put the desires in your heart that He would have you begin to trust Him for and release your faith to begin to accomplish. David was anointed somewhere around this 15, 16-year-old mark, felt the warm oil pouring out of the horn of the prophet Samuel going down over his head and hearing the crazy words, 
fresh from the sheep shed, smelling like sheep on him. And yet he's bowing before the prophet on his knees and he hears, Arise, you are the Lord's anointed. And he's going, did, did I just hear that right? I mean, those are the words that make kings. This is a ceremony that identifies who's going to hold power in the whole nation. David's thinking, why am I here? I, I, didn't, even, I didn't even ask for this. I didn't put in for this. I didn't apply for it. I didn't, I didn't sign up on LinkedIn and monster.com and I didn't send my resume out to be the next king. Didn't ask for it. Where'd this come from? And the whole point is, is that God saw what he saw in David's heart in spirituality and humility and integrity because David had been willing to go through the sheepshed school of leadership, number one. Everybody say solitude. Solitude. Solitude 101. It's aloneness. It's, it's the willingness to get acquainted with yourself and not have to be entertained. We are so inundated with media and sensory stimulation all the time all around us with our phones and our laptops and our, our iPads and our, our earbuds and our music and we're bumping and we're going down the road and we can't even drive in the car for a few minutes and quiet we gotta we gotta Bluetooth this in and we gotta talk and all of this stuff is going on, multitudes of voices and none of them without significance. And I believe that God makes people to become leaders when they learn to be by themselves for a little bit of time when they can go into a cave of seclusion if it's just 15 minutes of quiet time in the morning before the rest of the family gets up if it's before the demands of the boss and the cubicle and the students in the classroom and the sirens go off as a fireman and the policeman and everything that you do where the demands of the day start and the sun rises and all of the things that are groveling for your attention start Somewhere we have to learn how to appreciate some alone time where we can learn who we are, recognize our weaknesses and recognize our strengths that God has given us and develop those strengths into skillful hands that will be important in our future destinies where we can find where our passions are. This is, this is the time when David is over there. He's hanging out on the back backside of the wilderness and he's taking care of and protecting sheep and you've got to know on a day-to-day -day basis that he got tired of doing this same stuff because the, the next class that he graduates from Solitude 101 is Obscurity 201. First of all, David is from Bethlehem. Now folks, we sing Old Little Town of Bethlehem and it's famous to us but in his day it was about like Bono, Arkansas. You're listening to me on the web and you're from Bono, we love you in the name of Jesus. You're from that region, hey, great. But let's get real. It's just not a real bright spot on the map. Wherever you want to put it in, let's plug it anywhere. Anywhere I choose, somebody has the potential to offend. I don't want to offend anybody. The whole point is Micah 5.2. The prophet says, Oh, Bethlehem, how insignificant and small you are, but yet out of you God will rise up one who will shepherd my people Israel. God can take you from the unplaced, from the place where you are not recognized, where you are underappreciated, where you are under everything, where you are un... It's whatever descriptor you want to put behind the, the prefix un. David went through it. It was a place of complete, total isolation and obscurity, but in that place God revealed himself to him. Come on, somebody. Put your hands together and give the Lord praise. I wish I had time to, to remind you the story of my son who graduated from Arkansas State University and his international business degree. And man, he walks across the stage and he's happy. He's proud. He's, he's done it. He's finished. 
he, he graduated with a great grade point. And, and, and I'll just be honest, we didn't really know if he was going to finish. I just, when he went in, and it's, I don't want you to think I didn't have faith in my son, but Drew all through college was there much, he, it was more about the social game in high school for Drew than it was grades. He had friends and he, he was a networking, um, crazy how he could pull people together. And, and the most unlikely folks would become friends and it was all kind of centered around Drew. And so he was all very social and and just can sell anything. He can sell an Eskimo ice. That's how good he is. He's a great talker. And, and he graduates, and he's looking for a job, and he ends up working out here for a Tremendous Nursery, and he's leading a Mexican mowing crew. Drew is very prolific in Spanish, and they hired him because of the Como Esta Usted. They wanted to be able to because this, these migrant workers that were working for them at the time had just arrived and didn't speak any English whatsoever, maybe a half a dozen words. And Drew was very prolific at it. He was great in the classroom, Spanish, and he would get up every day and just shake his head and just nearly curse the thing. I don't mean literally saying curse words, but I mean he would just he would talk it down. He was just hated it. I just, I'm a college graduate. What am I doing? I just I hate this. And, and it's $10 an hour and I was sweating like an idiot. And I just kept telling him, you just stay sweet and don't despise the day of small things. God will use this. And if I had 10 minutes to tell you the whole story, I would, but this is it in the last 30 seconds. He ended up getting an interview at the end of the summer with C.H. Robinson, the world's largest transportation logistics company. And they conducted the first interview and he passed that round. They called him back the second time and he passed that round. They called him back the third time. The whole interview the third time was conducted in Spanish, but it wasn't classroom Spanish. It was street Spanish. It was what you need to know to be able to talk to the truckers when you're connecting a freight and a load and a trucker and a Latino. And he said, he called me the day and he had tears. I could hear it in his voice. He said, Dad, the very thing that I hated all summer long, that I literally cursed. He said, if I hadn't done that, he said, you told me that God would use that to teach me something for my future. And I just balked at it. I, 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 I rebuked it. I said, you're crazy. And blah, blah, blah. You know, just mouthing at me as his old man. He, he cried and he said, Dad, if I hadn't had that, I wouldn't have been able to pass this interview and gotten this job with this amazing company if I hadn't been there. Because every day he wasn't speaking classroom Spanish. He was speaking street Spanish. And that's how they conducted the interview. He said, if I hadn't done that, I wouldn't have been prepared. And day in, day out, in an obscure place, sometimes alone and feeling isolated. The monotony, my, my third point here, monotony 301. Don't hate the cubicle you're in. Do what you do with a good heart and a great attitude. Come on, shine it up. Clean it up. Stop complaining about where, where things are right now. Take care of what you've got. Don't, don't, don't criticize and curse the car you've got. Clean up that one. God's expecting you to do something with it before He gives you a new one. Come on, somebody. And you remember there was a time when you were so excited about that new job that you had. Now it's a little bit older and you just don't you hate the boss. I mean, what if you turn that energy into prayer? What if day in, day out, you would actually draw from those circumstances and the monotony and the mundane routine of an everyday and you went through those experiences and said, God, throw my heart open and teach me leadership so that I can run this company and not just be an hourly employee. You know what? If you'll change your heart, God will change your status. Are you hearing me? Monotony, the last one, very last one, reality. There's some real day-to-day -day life experiences that God used teaching David in the sheep shed that were going to help him actually lead the sheep of Israel. You want to know why? Because people and sheep are a lot alike. And God taught him lessons 
from dealing with those nasty, biting, stinky sheep on a day-to-day basis, loving them and protecting them and taking care of them and rescuing them from the mouths of predators, sitting out there in his alone time in his obscure place. And there's so much of that that I can relate to as a young man, just an experience of rejection that I had growing up, and yet God seemed to pour out not a three-string lyre, but mom bought a piano. She'd wanted one for years, and she bought a piano from Cordell's Music Center, and it sat in there in, in the house. And as soon as it came, I sat down and started realizing I have an ability to think a melody, and I can pull it out even though I don't even know what these keys are. I just sat down and started playing. And as crazy and bizarre as this is, the very first song that I sat down at the keyboard and played, the first week the piano was in my house, the bass changing. There's not a lot of variety at this point. Man, I read right hand was going to town. It was moving. I'm getting a little bit boring over here. Aunt Lucille came to town. She said, Michael, let me show you, son. And so she starts teaching me some chords, and she lays her hands on my head and prophesies, and she says, Lord, the gift of music that's there, energize it by the Holy Ghost. And I can't even begin to tell you the seasons that I've had in my own life sitting by myself when rejection came from other areas and it was the thing that God used the pain and drove me into the fundamentals of that. And I started hearing things and I started praying and I would sense the presence of God would come down into the room where I was worshiping Him. No, nobody else around. Nobody else involved didn't care what anybody else thought. And in those seasons, let me just tell you what God did. He started not just showing me from by taking lessons from somebody who could school me and teach me, but I would pray and I would actually, you can not believe this if you want to, but I would pray and I'd say, God, teach me, Holy Spirit. And I would watch my hands do things that they had never done before. I could hear things. And so much so, that continued to develop. What am I saying? And I don't want to get ahead of myself because I'm going to talk about this next week with David But God used that very thing in my moments of obscurity and pain to build something deep inside of my heart and dig a well that's way deep that if I say this, you'll think I'm being arrogant because we're just here in little West Memphis, Arkansas, in an obscure place. And I don't talk about it very often, but over the last 35 years, I've traveled to major meetings and continents, played before over 100,000 people in Jakarta, Indonesia, sat at the keyboard and led worship and had 100,000 people out there in the place listening to me play and listening to me sing. Did it in Europe. Did it, did it in, in China. And it's just so amazing that God can take a little scrawny dude off the back place of his father's sheepfold and bring him to the throne. God can do that with your life if you keep a right heart. Come on, somebody. It's all about your heart. Two things and I'm finished. Two things. Here we go. Leadership lessons. Read this out loud with me. Big things under spotlights are always accomplished because little things in lonely places. Listen, there are no overnight successes. Overnight successes, sure, all of a sudden are heard of, but they've been 20 years, 30 years in the making because God deals with and He changes. He transforms us 
Guys, there was a 13-year period from the time David knelt before Samuel, felt the warm oil pour over him, and the prophets say, Behold the anointed of the Lord. From the time he was anointed to the time he actually sat down on the throne of Israel. 13 more years of preparation. It's literally kindergarten through 12th grade. He doesn't leave the sheep shed of leadership. And that's the beauty of the thing. As soon as he gets up from being anointed by Samuel, he goes right back to, he didn't think, man, I'm so good, I'm so awesome, look at this, I'm going to be the next king. I can't do that. No, but he always maintains a servant heart, willing to do what needs to be done. Folks, if we would do that at our work, if we did that in our neighborhood, we literally could be a force that would shake the world. Come on, somebody. Put your hands together and give the Lord praise. Last one and I'm finished. Read it out loud. God is more concerned about your character than your comfort, and He doesn't get in a hurry developing it. He's going to take His good old God time. That means if I have to learn a lesson again, I'll go back and repeat it. There are no social promotions in the kingdom of God. God doesn't just pull you out of the third grade because you're 17 and, and six foot four. He says, no, we're going to learn this. We're going to go back again. We're going to make this around the mountain again. God is more concerned about my character than he is my comfort. And he doesn't get in a hurry developing it. So this morning, I just want to say to you, to, to start this series, what's the bottom line? What, what, what can I do? What, what, first of all, it's just recognizing it's not about what you do. It's recognizing about what you give God. And that's to say, God, here's my heart. A heart for God prepares me to be used by God. I need a heart change. I need a transformation. I, need, I, need, I want God to describe me and say that Michael is a man after my own heart. The only way that I can do that is to see him build that kind of spirituality, that sensitivity, that humility that doesn't think less of myself and make myself inferior, but it thinks about me less and more about Jesus and more about others. As a matter of fact, this is a great acronym. Everybody say JOY. Spell it with me. J-O-Y. The order of your thoughts ought to be Jesus, others, you. If you can live like that, your life will be filled with joy. Jesus, others, you. In that order. Pray with me this morning. God.